1: We're glad to have you all with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. As we mentioned at the end of the show yesterday, we're going to take just a brief break from the political headlines of the day here in uh, Georgia and, uh, and, and in the country at large uh, to talk about extremism. Um, you know, that, as I said in the very opening of the show, the, the riot, uh, the assault on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th Uh, was a wake-up call, I think, for many people who, you know, sort of had notions that there were extremist white supremacists out there with violent intentions, but I think many of us were stunned by uh, seeing it come to life um, in front of our eyes. At the Capitol that day, there were so many symbols of uh, the uh, organizations that these people uh, represent uh, that it's easy to begin talking about um, who these various groups are. So um, there were logos on, on hats and shirts. There were flags of different groups. There were backpacks. Uh, there were uh, the Roman numerals of the three percenters, uh, the red, white, and blue lion of V-Dare, uh, the letter Q for QAnon followers. It, it, all of this tells us uh, just a little bit about the diversity of the far right groups, representing everything from militia members to conspiracy theorists to white nationalist agitators, and and so we're going to take a look at that, do a survey essentially of what's happening in the extremist world right now, and we have a great panel uh, to. Uh, talk with us about that. Um, Chris Joyner is an investigative reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Chris covers extremist organizations. And Chris, um, you most recently have been keeping track of some of the Georgians who were actually involved in the riot at the Capitol uh, on January 6th. So thank you very much for being with us today.
2: Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, We're also joined by uh, Tess Owen, who is a senior reporter at Vice, who covers extremism and guns. Tess joins us from a very snowy Brooklyn, New York. Thank you. I'm glad to see uh, that you're warm in your apartment in Brooklyn. Tess, how long have you been covering extremist groups?
3: Um, uh, Thank you so much for having me. Um, I've been covering extremism since, um, I'd say, about (laughs) 2017, prior to Uh Charlottesville, and, and then have sort of tracked the movement's evolution um, post Charlottesville, and then this kind of I would say newer iteration that we've seen in the past year.
1: Okay. Well, we look forward to hearing your take on what's been happening in terms of. Uh extremist organizations. Um, We're also joined by Allison Padilla-Goodman, who is the Southeast Regional Director of the Anti-Defamation League. Um, Allison ADL monitors extremist groups and has been doing that for many decades. Your work has probably never been more important than it is right now.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Bill. It's great to be here with so many friends and to see you again.
1: And we're also joined by Tony Lemieux. Tony is a professor of communications at Georgia State University. Tony, your academic credentials are are deep, and uh, I want to just offer a couple of highlights, if it's okay with you. Um, You worked on, among other projects, with the Department of Homeland Security, uh, looking at um, uh, the impact of grievance on the support or terrorism and, and nonviolent protest, and you've worked on psychological communications and behavioral aspects of cybersecurity and, and many other aspects of terrorism uh, in your career. Uh, should I add anything to that, Tony? I think you, you covered
4: a good bit of it, but yeah, it's, it's really sort of taking <laughs> a long view and a historical look across different types of groups across space and time and really looking at those motivations.
1: So, I want to start by taking a slightly long view, if I may. Um, And and I want to talk a little bit about how the perception of extremist groups, primarily white supremacist organizations, um, has developed over the decades. Um, I think back to a time in around the mid-80s or so when uh, TV talk shows like Sally Jesse Raphael, like Jerry Springer, would routinely have uh, Klansmen and uh, white supremacist young men, and they were there kind of as a sideshow. They were encouraged to act up on the the shows. Uh, They weren't taken very seriously, it didn't seem to me. The audience was uh, encouraged to jeer at them, Uh, To boo them Um, in what 92 Tony is it 90 was it 92 or 93 that the um, that uh, uh, Timothy McVeigh McVeigh bombed the Muir federal building in Oklahoma City
4: Oh 95
1: 95 I'm sorry. Thank you. Even in 95 McVeigh's act was horrifying. It was terrifying um but he wasn't really talked about in terms of his um, involvement in larger, ter- a larger kind of terrorist culture. Ruby Ridge, Waco were both in many ways seen as um, incidents separated in time from what was going on uh, across the country with other... Uh, groups. And so that's why I said at the very start of the show, in many ways, these individuals, these organizations have been hiding in plain sight. And of course, in the decades since, we've seen the evolution of many, many more organizations. So let me start by, Tess, let me start with you on that. Um, When you think about that, do you think I have that kind of right that we've watched this evolution of our awareness about uh, the fact that these groups are much more prolific than we thought, and things that we used to look at as sort of isolated incidents really should have told us something about a pattern that was developing?
3: Absolutely. And I think especially for the last year, um, I think there's several events that stand out to me that really take us um, through through 2020 and to January 6th. And I'm... Um, so the first is this, you might recall, a massive gun rights rally in Richmond, Virginia, uh, January 20th. And um, that event was pretty, you know, relatively peaceful the day itself, but it had been overshadowed by threats from militia extremists who had been talking about storming the Capitol um, and sparked the boogaloo, which is their, you know, code for a second civil war. Um, and then I think from there, like, we saw the COVID-19 lockdowns, and we saw armed protesters at Lansing, Michigan, for example, storming the Capitol. And we know later on that some of the people who were involved in that in that event were also plotting to allegedly kidnap the governor or had talked about, you know, holding televised executions of elected officials. Um, and then, you know, if we go all the way forward to December in Salem, Oregon, uh, we again saw armed protesters trying to storm the Capitol. Um, what was different uh, to me at that time is that I I was watching um, live streams of it, and I was seeing pro-Trump protesters or far-right protesters actually fighting police. Um, And I think that sort of kind of set a new precedent and also kind of put us where we were on January 6th.
1: Allison, um, we should not uh, talk about what's happened in the past few years without mentioning uh, uh, Charlottesville, which was a a, a day or so of uh, violent protests that the Anti-Defamation League was particularly uh, concerned about because, of course, of the chance from the white supremacists Jews will not replace us. And in many ways— uh, in addition to what uh, Tess just talked about, Charlottesville really woke a lot of people up to the realization that white supremacist movements were, in fact, coalescing and becoming more and more powerful.
0: I think that's exactly right. Charlottesville was just a tremendous turning point uh, mm-hmm. In, in looking at extremism, because what Charlottesville was called the Unite the Right rally, and that's exactly what it was. It was all these different ideologies and factions who maybe historically have not gotten along or even liked each other coming together for common purpose. And since Charlottesville, we've seen a huge effort by extremists of all kinds to kind of um, enter mainstream America uh, in ways that we have not seen in a long time. So um, here in Georgia, well, I should say nationwide, but we've seen several examples of this here in Georgia, we saw extremists um, pushing propaganda, um, putting up posters on college campuses, um, kind of speaking to kids' sense of white nationalism and saying that being white was okay. We saw extremists drop 200-foot banners off of major interstate interchanges Uh, you know, with banners saying, end immigration now, right? Something that was part of a mainstream political debate, uh, something that people in Washington were talking about, and they said, wow, this is aligned with our ideology, and this is our moment, so much so that we can drop a 200-foot banner off of the most trafficked intersection in Atlanta, or the world, um, off of the Georgia Tech overpass. Um, So we've seen kind of extremists and Seeping into kind of everyday rhetoric, you know, and from where I sit, we've also seen that impact the data on anti-Semitism in pretty significant ways. We do an annual audit of anti-Semitic incidents looking at anti-Semitic incidents of vandalism, um, harassment, and assault. And just a few weeks before and after Charlottesville, we saw 187 percent spike just in those few weeks. Since then, we have seen the numbers continue to increase, and actually from our 2019 data shows 124% increase in anti-Semitic incidents from 2015. You know, we talk about anti-Semitism because it's ADL, it's what we care about, but it's also kind of a barometer for other forms of hatred and the kind of tolerance level in our society uh, for extremism. So I think you're exactly right here.
1: Um, Chris, I want to bring you in. Uh, First of all, for transparency's sake, and I think most of the people who listen to the show regularly are are aware of this, um, uh, I I used to be, uh, a number of years ago, the the southeast director of the ADL. I I had the job that that Allison uh, has done so well at uh, uh, today, so I'm aware of ADL's work, and I just want to make sure our listeners uh, see that, uh, uh, know about that. But, Chris, you know, it's interesting, in fact, in terms of ADL and and my old involvement there, you know, when we talked about extremism back 10 years ago at ADL, it was mostly about, oh, there's going to be a Klan rally in a community in northwest Georgia or South. Uh, West Georgia, whatever, Uh, and uh, people would get stirred up. We'd become very concerned about it. Uh, Law enforcement would turn out, making sure they could separate the protesters of the Klan from the Klan itself. And typically about 30 people would show up, and it would all go away. There's a strange way, and I really don't mean this uh, to be in any way an underestimation of the dangers of the Klan, but those days seem almost quaint compared to what we're seeing now with extremist organizations in Georgia.
2: Oh, I I would agree entirely with you, Bill. I mean, one of the, uh, I think the hallmarks of this period that we're living through right now is that far-right groups that used to be isolated are now much more connected with other people across ideologies, so whereas 10, 20 years ago, you might have had 15, 20 uh, Klansmen in a community that decided they wanted to dress up and uh, parade through town. Uh, they wouldn't have connections with an internationalist far-right community like the American Identity Movement or something like that. Uh, really now, what we saw in Charlottesville and then what we saw again on January 6 was the ability to use social media and messaging apps uh, uh, for uh, these groups to communicate and plan and develop a, a, a real-world uh, display. Uh, and uh, I think that's a real difference uh, that I've noticed since I've started covering uh, the uh, extremist politics of the right uh, in the uh, in the years following. Really, what I felt was a keystone moment was the Mother Emmanuel massacre in uh, Charleston, mm-hmm. Uh, South Carolina and the reaction that it provoked in the far right when uh, Confederate flags started coming down. That's when you really started to see some real world collaboration between like neo-Confederates, uh, 3% militia, uh, the vestiges of old organizations like the Klan and new ones that we would then call the alt-right. So, the, you know, that Convergence of uh, of groups has really been uh, what's what's been troubling, I think, about this moment.
1: All right, T- Tony, I want to get take care of something right away uh, in this conversation. Uh, we know that when we talk about extremist organizations I mean, who are prone to violence, there are um, th- that there are going to be people who are conservatives, who are Republicans, who say, "Why do you focus on?" On white supremacists? Why do you focus on right-wing extremism? What about Antifa? Uh, What about Black Lives Matter? But the fact of the matter is that even Christopher Wray, the director of FBI, when he gave the testimony that we alluded to at the very top of the show, said it was white extremism that was the real issue. Uh, It was Uh, white terrorist organizations that the government really needed to be the most careful of. You're the communications uh, expert. Uh, Talk about that.
4: Well, this is a great point. It's, it's, I think, kind of a long... Uh, you know, overdue conversation about, you know, being able to recognize and label and talk about things as terrorism and as violent extremism, you know, so so that I think has been, you know, a huge discrepancy in, you know, over the years of how things get covered, if they get covered, if dots get connected, because, you know, things that are attributed to a lone actor and sort of a one-off that, you know, don't get, you know, considered as part of a broader network, um, you know, however loosely construed, right, but but as, as part of a broader phenomenon, and then you tend to lose that thread. And I think that's been something that, you know, I've been concerned with for many, many years. And even when you go to try to broach that subject, you know, you get the what aboutism. Well, what about, you know, the extreme left? Well, sure, but when you look at the data, I mean, and this is something we can do empirically. We not only see where the attacks are happening and perpetrated by who, Um, but also uh, it allows us to have a much more sort of precise ability to have that conversation. I think the times, you know, certainly come for that.
1: Um, And and by the way, I think it's important to point out that when uh, many conservatives (laughs) talk about Black Lives Matter as though they should be uh, included in in organizations that are uh, in in many ways uh, uh, violent in nature, I I think that there'd be a lot of pushback uh, because uh, – much of Black Lives Matter has been a peaceful protest movement. It certainly has been co-opted at times by uh, fringes, but, but I don't <laughs> – hold the tweets, folks, is what I'm saying. All right, Tess, let me go back to you again, and then everybody, please feel free to weigh in. Um, one of the things – you all look at, at extremist groups, terrorist organizations. Um, first of all, Tess, is it okay if I call these groups terrorist organizations?
3: Um, so that's one of the things that we get a lot of pushback often when we call, I mean, for example, the language around militias, this has been a, a kind of a, a hot button issue um, recently, especially after the, um, the, like the, the governor of Michigan, um, alleged kidnapping plan that was kind of being, being led by militias. And, you know, a lot of, um, our readers say, you know, why are you calling them militias? And militias is like the, yeah, the, the, the name to give themselves. So we've, we've now changed to self-styled militias, but I guess terrorists is, is strictly because it's a legal label. Um, so we try to avoid that. And also, you know, there's no domestic terror law. So, I mean, they're not actually technically terrorist groups, even though they might certainly behave like some. And, you know, there's groups like the Proud Boys, which are, I mean, I call them a far right street fighting gang. Um, but it's interesting now looking, at, for example, at like Canada, Canada is now moving closer up to actually designating them as a terrorist organization. So that I think also. I don't know, definitely raises some interesting questions about how we, sh- what kind of language we should be using.
1: All right, so let me keep it with you, though. Let's call them extremist organizations. Let's call them, in many cases, white supremacist organizations. I have a hard time, uh, and you cover these groups, wrapping my arms around all of these different groups, the three percenters, the... Uh, the, the The proud boys uh, who are out there, all the other uh, organizations that showed themselves at the uh, a- a- at the attack on the capitol and and they don't have they don't all have the same agenda. They have very different agendas. So how, is there a way, and I'd love everybody to weigh in on this, but you start Tess. aside from the fact that they all seem to now believe that violence is a mean to some ends, how else are they tied together?
3: Yeah, it was a, a real mixed buffet um, at, at um, January 6th. Um, I think one thing, and this is something that I've heard from a lot of experts I talk to for my job, um, is this ongoing concern about what they call like, the GOP feedback loop that's been happening a lot over the f- last few years. But I think it also touches kind of on what Alison was saying, which is like the mainstream of, mainstreaming of extremist ideas. Um But then also when, you know, Trump doesn't outright condemn white supremacists in Charlottesville or hedges on QAnon. Um, I think that kind of got worse through 2020 with like COVID-19 conspiracy theories and the Stop the Steal movement. You end up with elected officials kind of legitimizing conspiracy oriented movements um, that started on the fringe and then in turn kind of emboldens fringe groups. And then that sort of ensnares everyone in the middle. Uh, So it's just this kind of like loop that keeps going back around is kind of how I think about it, if that makes sense. Uh,
2: This is Chris. Uh, I'm just building on what Tess is saying. I think she's absolutely correct that um, there is an element – and and when you when you talk about is, are these terrorist organizations and do they have different um, uh, goals? They do have different goals, but they're bound together through a certain worldview, and uh, they are constantly uh, attempting to pull the legitimate right closer to them and push the legitimate left farther from them. Uh, and this is a process that sometimes experts refer to as accelerationism, that the idea that if they can pull at the fabric of society strong enough that coll- that it will collapse, and from the rubble they're going to be able to build this, you know, uh, extremist uh, vision of what society is going to look like. I've talked to uh, uh, a uh, white supremacist uh, who has spent decades. Uh, in activism on the extreme right and various different organizations. And he's told me that, uh, you know, the things I was saying just 15 years ago, he's hearing in, you know, regular political circles. Now he's very, very uh, uh, encouraged by the fact that his, uh, you know, some of his extremist rhetoric that he had to shout on uh, courthouse steps 20 years ago is now being said by legitimate politicians. And that's that's also disturbing.
1: I I want to follow up on on exactly that, on kind of the uh, sudden acceptance in mainstream culture of some of what's going on with these organizations. Um, But, Chris, as long as you're talking, I've just gotten a note, I'm not surprised, uh, from a uh, uh, listener who says, have you forgotten 90 consecutive nights of rioting and destruction in Portland? Where is the balance on your show? Um, which speaks, Chris, to this concern that some people have that, that we're focusing, not just us, but th- that the focus has been on uh, the white supremacists, the, the white extremist groups, uh, and not enough attention on the left.
2: I, mean, I understand that argument. Uh, I understand where it's coming from. We've seen it. We saw it throughout uh, 2020, uh, particularly in hot spots like uh, Portland, Oregon where uh, peaceful protests would become violent, uh, particularly as the day got longer. Um, In following this over a period of years, uh, the left, the far left, uh, I'm not talking about just, I'm not talking about Black Lives Matter, social justice uh, protesters, but I'm talking about people who are more self-styled anarchists and communists have become Uh, increasingly animated uh, in their, in the way that they confront uh, the far right. And uh, a lot of the times uh, uh, a protest like uh, you might see in a a Portland then becomes a battleground between these two fringes. One of the things that I felt was most disturbing uh, that I saw in 2020 was an increasing uh, instance of the the far left showing up to these uh, protests as armed as the militia members on the far right. Uh, And I think that's a trend that's going to be, uh, we're going to see more of going forward. The arm the left movement is uh, uh, significant and actually is is worrying.
1: Um, All right, Tony, yeah, go ahead. You weigh in and then I got a question for you.
4: Well, I think one of the things to kind of bring this point home a little bit is when you're talking about the accelerationist space, those sort of traditional sense of left, right, liberal, conservative, they don't really hold. And I think that's really an important point for us to to, wrap our arms around and recognize that this isn't sort of the, the, the kind of conventional way we would think about those left-right dimensions in a political sense. You know, the goal is really to, for many of these actors, is to find whatever it is that's going to sow that division, cause that conflict, really inflame the tensions, and bring it to a head. And so that's why, you know, in some of these videos that would leak from places like Portland, where you'd see, you know, somebody just kind of walking around nonchalantly smashing windows. Well, you know, they weren't there because they were worried about social justice. They were there to try to, you know, see, hey, can we bring the broken windows theory to life here and and really kind of stir the pot and inflame the situation more? You know, and so I think it is, you know, I understand the question from your your listener, um, but I think it really is missing the point to put this truly in a left-right LibCon dimension. It it doesn't work like that.
1: I'm glad you said and – I, and I really do want to focus on what we saw coming out of January 6th, which was, in fact, uh, white supremacists, white extremists, uh, and 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 that's the subject at least uh, for today. Um, Allison, and then please, everybody, jump in on this. I, I said a minute ago we've seen this sort of strange acceptance in many circles of extremist behavior, or if not acceptance – uh, a, a failure to condemn. I mean, we go we go all the way back to the debate, Pre- President, former President Trump, uh, with his message uh, to the Proud Boys: stand back, uh, stand by. Um, I mentioned that back in the days of Jerry Springer, the white supremacists, the Klans people, were brought in so the audience could jeer at them. They were outliers. They were absurd characters. Um, you at ADL have watched how the lack of condemnation by significant portions of our political structure uh, has maybe encouraged these groups to continue their activities.
0: Absolutely. Um, but I would take it a little bit further. It's not just um, our political figureheads, it's all, we can't deny the role that social media has had over the past few years in amplifying extremist voices, as um, one of my colleagues was saying earlier, um, connecting people across. It's no longer the six individuals in a small town, but they are connected globally now. Um, And the role that social media has played in the rise of extremism, I mean, is undeniable. And we saw that erupt pretty tremendously in the past few weeks with um, the banning of several individuals finally on some major social media platforms, but it was, it was definitely too little too late. Tess. So yeah, oh, so just to go back
3: to the the Antifa discussion on um, um obviously, you know, I, and as Chris said, yes, there is a very troubling development in terms of the, the armed groups that are coming out. And yes, anti fascists do destruct property. But I think there's also it's been used as such a it's a rhetorical boogeyman. And there's so much misinformation about Antifa um, and conspiracy theories. You know, like last summer, we saw people coming out with guns in there to defend their towns from what they what they believed was an impending Antifa threat. And the, obviously, Antifa never actually arrived. And we even saw this after January 6th. You know, there was this kind of rumors that started going around that Antifa were actually responsible for the capital invasion. And I can say that I, mean, I was there. And I can say that I did not see a single counter-protester um, um, in the crowd. And not only that, I actually saw quite an interesting example of like, misinformation traveling in real time, because uh, there were some guys who were breaking a window, and someone behind them said, hey, that's Antifa. And I saw this claim kind of ripple outwards, where they were going, oh, Antifa's here. Um, and like, you know, it absolutely was not Antifa, it was somebody who was very much part of this um, mob. But um, I think it is fascinating how this kind of outsized man of Antifa has sort of um,
1: just taken over. Um, All right. I've got to get to a break. I have so many more questions that I want to ask this uh, panel about, and we'll get to them after these messages. We're talking about extremist organizations and uh, their activities today. Our panelists are Professor Tony Lemieux, Professor of Communications at Georgia State, Allison Padilla-Goodman, Director of the uh, Southern Uh, region of the Anti-Defamation League, Tess Owen, a senior reporter at Vice covering extremism and guns. By the way, Tess, because there are going to be people who sort of know the history of Vice, we should say that long before Vice became the force it is today, one of your founders actually went on uh, to become an active leader in a, a white supremacist organization but he's long since been disavowed uh, 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 uh avowed by by vice so just in case anybody thinks about that right
3: yeah absolutely yeah he uh, co-founder of vice uh, left the company and and then went on to sound the proud boys um
0: yeah
1: so, so
3: <laughs> you know in, in, interesting aspect of my work but um but yeah he's <laughs> he's, he's, he's been uh, long gone for the proud boys as well or so he says
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, And uh, also, Chris Joyner, an investigative reporter who covers extremism uh, in the Southeast and in Georgia for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tony Lemieux, let me start with you, because you've had a lot of uh, uh, interesting work that you've done on social media. And and I want to take us back in history again, and and then I want everybody to jump in on this. Um, I was doing some research on social media and extremist organizations, and I came across what I thought was really interesting information. In 1982, a guy named Louis Beam, who was a former Grand Dragon of the KKK in Texas, decided he he had a Commodore 64, the, one of the very first home computers, and he decided that the best way to bring together people who shared his extremist beliefs was through using... Um, the The computers of the day to uh, to communicate with one another and to begin plotting strategies. And uh, he couldn't get anybody to pay attention to him. The other extremists who he tried to talk into getting involved were like, "What are you talking about? We don't we don't know about computers. We're we're me- we're mechanics in garages. We're farm workers. Whatever." Um, and boy, have things changed, Tony. Well,
4: absolutely. And I think the other thing that of that era, and I'm glad you're kind of going back that way, and I want to give a plug for a book called Bring the War Home. Um, Catherine bellu has got this really great history that talks about this sort of organization, and Cynthia Miller Idris has one called Hate in the Homeland. You read those two books. And you're really going to, I think, have a pretty comprehensive sense of where, you know, the space we're talking about here. But, yeah, not only was it how do we communicate and organize and influence and, and you know, kind of have that air of legitimacy because there were kind of multiple threads here. One was to sort of look more the part, look more professional, don't look like, you know, the kind of you know were just making fun of the sort of the – spectacle on like the Springer show. Well, it was like the antithesis of that. It was like, how do you make these sort of talking points that will then make their way into the mainstream? Fast forward, you know, 30 plus years later, and here we are, we're really seeing that. The other piece I think is really important is build capacity, you know, know how to use weapons, munitions, know kind of uh, trade craft and, 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 you know, be proficient and to build that skill and that has also persisted and that really has been a hallmark of a lot of the groups even if we kind of pull that thread through today and look at groups like the Atomwaffen waffen division and base where it's not enough to sort of have the ideas but it is to figure out how do you put those ideas into effective action um and so you know if that can be helped through com- com- you know computer mediation and and you know materials and ideas can be shared and tactics and skill then you know whatever will work is sort of emphasizing its utilitarian you know sort of perspective but it does map back on to particular um points you know they talk about like the the importance of the turner diaries for these groups or, or the siege more recently you know like different sort of canonical texts and you know you start to look at those and you get an idea about why Um, And how and when and where of of these various movements and what I think the the conversation brings together is that there is this sort of long evolution and it did start with people like Beam and Metzger and and, there's a a long list of folks we could name there, but it carries through to today. And in fact, the version of it today continues that tradition of being armed to the teeth and training and preparing Um, And that really, I think, is important, right? We talk about the motivation. That's always been there. What I think we need to really be concerned with is when that motivation is then matched with some kind of capability or capacity and forms a more specific set of intentions and targets. And that's kind of where we're at right now.
1: Um, Chris, it occurs to me you've written about some of the Georgians who were in in, uh, Washington. A couple things occur to me about that. Number one, they probably wouldn't have ended up there. Uh, coming from uh, Georgia, unless they were connected on social me- various social media platforms that uh, uh, told them what was going to be happening and uh, encouraged them to come, and then uh, the corollary that is ironically, it was the posts they put up on their own social media platforms that ended up getting some of them arrested, as you've reported on.
2: Oh, it's true. Um, you know, they the the. Chronicling of it on their own social media channels uh, of January 6th is uh, really, uh, uh, I don't know that we've ever seen anything that is comparable. I mean, uh, it's uh, the, it's, there's volumes and volumes that will be assembled uh, by federal prosecutors just from posts on Parlor uh, uh, or live, live tweeting uh, their. Their behavior you know but one of the things that I think that is really interesting and is not to be missed when you look at this uh, social media um uh evidence trail that they left behind is how they are sort of dissembling right in the moment as they are uh, assaulting the capital they are you know in real time you can see them um uh, Avoiding responsibility for it. And this is, uh, I think, one of the really fascinating things. You know, they, they're they blaming Democrats. They're blaming Antifa uh, in the very moment that they're breaking windows and, and, and entering the Capitol. And I, and I think it's one of the things that I think we're going to have to watch. After Charlottesville, there was a real... Um, uh, Charlottesville was was supposed to be a real coming out party for the far right. This was going to be when they took all their online ideology and they brought it into the real world. And that first night with the tiki torches was what they thought that Charlottesville was going to be. The second day, the chaos that came from it was uh, was uh, dissembling for the whole movement. And you saw you saw organizations collapse uh, under the weight of that chaos in the days that followed Charlottesville in the weeks that followed Charlottesville people were arrested there were civil suits that destroyed uh, uh, certain far-right groups and I I' we're seeing you know this flight from accountability combined with the arrests after January 6th this may not be the victory that it uh, for the far right that they thought it was going to be and I think that's one of the things we really need to watch is to see how do they, You know, gather themselves up, and what does that post January sixth far right movement look like?
1: Well, that raises a question that I wanted to ask, Uh, Allison. uh, You certainly respond to that, but let me also ask you, since you uh, at ADL monitor these groups, just how dangerous are they at this point? How how frightened should we be? And they don't have a unified goal. I mean, to some extent, some of them are uh, looking to disrupt. At a state capitol, for instance, but there are others who were part of that group who really believe in the overthrow of the United States government.
0: Yeah, I uh, I love what Tess said earlier about it being a real diverse buffet of what we saw at the Capitol, and it's true. You know, similar to Charlottesville, we saw a lot of groups with really diverse, um, not just diverse ideologies, but diverse potential for violence, kind of coming together. Um, all rallying around the kind of common grievance of feeling like something was literally being stolen from them, an election. Um, And so we had, you know, accelerationists and violent white supremacists. We had um, patriot white supremacists who just think that, you know, the future of America is a white nation. We had QAnon conspiracy theorists and um, militant militias all coming together for that common purpose in D.C. And uh, something to add, you know, something we've seen since Charlottesville that we then saw again in D.C. that Chris kind of touched on is um, social media is connecting people from wide geography and people investing in the travel to make that happen. So in Charlottesville, you know, we had people from over 30 states to send on Virginia, and they came from far. They came from Washington State and California and elsewhere. We saw that not long after here in Georgia, when there was a rally in Noonan several years ago. It wasn't a great rally. There weren't that many people. But of the two or three dozen um, neo-Nazis who were there, only two of the people were actually from Georgia. The rest came from Connecticut and California and kind of spent the money and effort to really travel, which I think shows a different level of conviction than we've seen. Tess? Um, I,
1: I, there's
3: one thing. I mean... The comparison to Charlottesville is really interesting to me. Um, and but one of the things that really uh, stands out to me is that in Charlottesville, I feel like there was people who were emboldened, perhaps emboldened by the president's agenda, or emboldened by you know anti-immigration rhetoric, um, and like as, as Chris said, the coming out party for the far right. Um, was what's really struck me about um, January sixth was the was a sheer number of kind of pretty regular people. I mean, there's a lot of focus on the extremist groups that were involved and rightfully so, but I think there's also, you know, just seeing, you know, otherwise seemingly normal people um, who were actually willing to, um, to resort to violence. And I guess these are people in my view who've been radicalized by conspiracy theories that have been, you know, peddled at the highest level of government. And so kind of how do you, you know, remove those people from, from extremism?
1: Um, Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, uh, we'll continue our conversation uh, on extremism and where it's headed today. You're listening to Political Rewind. Uh, Just before we took our break, uh, Tess Owen of Vice— Uh, talked about the ordinary people who uh, she saw at the uh, 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 riot at the U.S. Capitol. And and it's interesting you point that out, Tess, because just before we went on the air, the New Yorker put up – a uh, piece by Ronan Farrow, who was able to get an interview with a woman who was known as largely as the, the woman in the pink hat with the bullhorn, who was very actively trying to break in to the capital and encouraging people to join her. Her name, it turns out, is Rachel Powell. She's a 40-year-old mother of eight children from Western Pennsylvania who sold cheese and yogurt at local farmers markets. What So that leads me to this question. What, who are, they? I mean, and, and Tess, you go ahead and start it, but I really want to hear everybody on this. Who are these people? I, I understand it. They're aggrieved. They feel disenfranchised. But breaking into the United States Capitol is a far cry from selling cheese at a farmer's market.
3: I mean, I saw someone with a Labradoodle at the Capitol, uh you know, attempted insurrection, which, I mean, it it was pretty stunning. There's a number, you know, just seeing relatively, you know, families and people kind of walking around, you know, that looked like they could have been golfing otherwise, walking around the Capitol and saying, you know, we need to find another, you know, we need to find another entrance, you know, like, you know, let's go. It was absolutely surreal. And I think, yeah, the de-radicalization of America, I don't know what that looks like, but it's definitely something to be worth talking about.
1: Uh, Chris, Tony, are these Trump supporters who who were enraged by the so-called stolen election, are they people who had the seeds of this um, grievance before that that were were, uh, brought to the surface by Trump? I mean, who are they?
2: I think, uh, you know, we haven't really broached the topic yet, but this is where I think the QAnon conspiracy theory plays a part uh, and its, uh, you know, conjoined twin, the Stop the Steal movement, uh, both played a really important role in taking, you know, ardent Donald Trump supporters and further ra- and, and radicalizing them in that ac- into action. Uh, you know, when we talk about the people who've been arrested from Georgia, for instance, these are not members of militia. These are not proud boys. These are people who have been radicalized individually online by the way to the conspiracy theories that have been passed along through Facebook, through Twitter, and especially uh, in the months leading up to. Um, uh, the uh, riot on Parler and on sites like uh, the donald.win you know, where they were fed uh, really hardcore conspiracy theories twenty four hours a day uh, in a in a real information vacuum, and uh, it just took people who were already aggrieved and and you know as they say in the in the far right red pilled them, you know, made them uh, made them into sort of activated extremists. Really, without it, without an organization.
1: Uh, Tony, the other thing that Ronan Farrell learned from the woman he profiled is that uh, the lockdowns around COVID nineteen infuriated her. She felt that uh, the Big Brother was trying to prevent her from living her daily life.
4: Yeah, this is this is really an important part of this narrative, and it's not you know only uh, you know unique to the 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 sort of. Uh, protests at the Capitol. But really, there is this sort of sense of an existential threat, right? And this has been kind of ramped up for for many years. You know, it's a threat to the American way, your way of life. You know, there were sort of coded references to the threat of the suburbs or who's going to come for your farms and and all of these things and and this has been by the way an important part of the the sort of broader white power narrative for for a long long time white genocide and great replacement and and so it's not i think an accident that some of the language would go back to the charlottesville you know sort of uh situation uh, of of seeing you know, the, the Jews will not replace us chant. Like, that didn't come out of a vacuum. It's really part of this sense of replacement. And it shows up in the manifestos. It shows up certainly in Dylan Roof and Tarrant. And, and you know, you, you think about, uh, you know, some of the people who are really lionized in the extreme space in this movement, uh, Anders Breivik, for instance, and this sort of replacement narrative, this threat is pervasive. So when you see that amplified in this sort of gamified QAnon space where there's conspiratorial thinking and the threats of stealing things and taking things and, you know, putting your life, uh, you know, and your way of life at risk, that is a really sort of potent uh, mix. Bill, I'd love to jump in. This is Allison.
0: Just This goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about the mainstreaming um, or the kind of gradual seeping into uh, mainstream dialogue and connecting with mainstream political debate of the extremist movements. And we saw it erupt on January 6th. Um, You know, since Charlottesville, we have seen kind of gradual upticks in anti-Semitism. We've seen continuous presence of extremist kind of rallies and propaganda. We've seen the, the kind of explosive growth of QAnon and other conspiracy theories. And so, you know, I think it's not that surprising that, you know, January 6th was the most predictable event that we have seen in, in this kind of eventual timeline.
1: Um. Tess, when we talk about the uh, mainstreaming in some ways of extremism, we're going to see a big test of that this week in the United States House. Uh, We've talked a lot on this show recently about Marjorie Taylor Greene, since she is the congresswoman from the 14th District in Northwest Georgia. If Kevin McCarthy, who is being challenged now to do something about her extremist rhetoric, her... Uh, liking of tweets that suggest that um, Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats should be executed, if Republicans don't take some action against her, what are they saying uh, to the groups like the Proud Boys, like the Three Percenters, about the legitimization of some of their worst theory? Forget about the—I mean, I, they're not encouraging them to be violent, but on the other hand, they are to some extent—if they don't do something. Um, Giving them the freedom to continue these wacky conspiracy theories that motivate them, yes?
3: Yeah, I mean it's dangerous because it allows these this 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 consp- this huge conspiracy theory community um, to you know continue with the, their belief their their false belief that they have you know, allies at the top level of government. That's like the entire, that's, the, you know, one of, one of the back rooms, at least of their, of their of their community. And when people like Marjorie Taylor Greene continue to coddle them, um, and if her Republican colleagues uh, do not, I mean, I know Mitch McConnell came out quite forcefully and condemned her and, her and her rhetoric, but if others don't do that, then, you know, they run the risk of allowing this conspiracy theory to just continue um, burgeoning as it has been doing.
1: Um, Tony, a, a, a listener uh, sent an interesting comment to us saying um, what's uh, 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 distressing to her is that uh, many of these uh, people wrap themselves in the American flag, consider themselves great patriots, love to hearken back to the American revolutionaries and see themselves in that same light. Storming the United States Capitol, very symbol of our democracy, seems antithetical to those uh Efforts to brand themselves as American patriots.
4: Yeah, and this is, I think, uh, again consistent with what we know about violent extremism in other contexts. They view themselves as part of a vanguard. In fact, it's you know the language of of awakening and calling people sheep, and, and you know, like a lot of those things. I mean, this is. This is consistent with what we know about how groups like even al-Qaeda use themselves as a vanguard. They're the sort of tip of the spear. And so it's not surprising that those in this space then would say, oh, well, we're the real patriots because we know what's going on and you don't. And we have to fight it and we have to fix it. And they've really taken on that mantle. And I think, you know with potentially, you know, disastrous consequences. And I think it will, if we really don't get our arms around the scope and the nature of this problem and the fact that, you know, active law enforcement and military have been recruited in that, that becomes something that really can cast a much longer shadow.
1: Um, Chris, we are really short on time, but the one question that I should have asked and didn't, maybe you can give us a very brief answer and we'll elaborate it some other time. We'll invite you all back. Um, how, how is the movement? How are these movements growing in Georgia? Are they growing dramatically? Are there reasons for Georgians to be concerned?
2: I do think that there are some reasons to suspect that they're going to grow. One of the reasons is is that um, in some ways having uh, Donald Trump as a figurehead for a lot of these groups inhibited recruiting. And uh, I think now that he's out, it'll be easier to actually recruit under a Biden administration for some of these groups, particularly like militia groups. Oh, all
1: right. Um, we will watch that. Look, I would love to invite all of you to come back at another time to continue this conversation. There's so much more. And, and I hope you'll be open to doing that. So Tony Lemieux, Alison Badia Goodman, Tesso and Chris Joyner, thank you for a really important, uh, and enlightening conversation. Um, we are going to get back to talking Marjorie Taylor green tomorrow. There's going to be a privilege resolution on the floor of the house to, uh, ask her for her, uh, to, to oust her from Congress. And we'll see how that develops. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy. And yes, wear not one mask, wear two of them to protect yourselves. See y'all tomorrow.